Hi, everyone. What an amazing crowd. Eager faces. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's a tremendous privilege and an honor that we have here. Have anyone here met a real Lord before? I didn't say the Lord. I said a Lord. Because if you haven't, this is the opportunity to hear a real Lord speak. Someone who's dying, doing amazing work all over the world, I'm sure. Many of you have heard him speak before. If not, you're in for a tremendous and amazing treat. And he's now part of Yeshiva University faculty. Round of applause. His name, of course, is Rabbi... Oh, he's got... (laughs) Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, originally from England, of course. He is the Kressel and Afrat Family University professor of Jewish thought here at Yeshiva University. Myself and Shoshana Shechter were told a number of months ago that Lord Sachs would be speaking for us. And when I say us, I mean the Mechina students here at Stern College. A round of applause for all of you. Those of you who are in the program, have been through the program, or attending some of the classes in the program, while well, standing room only. Okay, guys, chill out, take a seat on the floor. It's all good. They're still coming in. We are really thrilled to have him here. Our program, Mechina program, under myself and Mr. Shana Shechter, who's here over there, she runs the program for us, has really grown and blossomed over the many years we've been running it together. And the appreciation we get from the students and the faculty really shows itself. And this is the gift that we get. We, you, get to hear Lord Jonathan Sachs speak before anybody else, which is a tremendous privilege and an honor. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over the microphone to Rabbi Sachs, and I hope you will enjoy yourselves. I just want to welcome Mary Swartz. Oh, okay, everyone, just there's a wonderful young lady at the back over here, Mary, who's a good friend of ours, Mary Swartz over here, who's joined us. She is someone who's given a lot a lot of her time, love, and support to our program, our Israel program, and here as well. So if you don't mind, I know you don't know her, but without her, we wouldn't be here. Thank you, Mary, for coming in. We know it's a, uh, uh, your time is precious to you. We appreciate you being here to enjoy this. Thank you so much, Mary. Without further ado, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like, listen, I'm worried about you standing here. That you can sort of sit on the um, sit on the radiator. Can I come and have a come forward? You know. Guys, take seats. Come. Listen, I'm, it's quite comfortable. I can tell you. Uh, thank Vodarov. Thank you so much. Uh, the honor is all mine. You are an extraordinary group of people. All of you have made a long journey, not just physically, but spiritually as well, to come here. And I regard it as an enormous, enormous privilege to be able to meet you. Uh, The Rav said, uh, you know, how often do you meet a Lord? I'll tell you something. It's very interesting. Uh, I um, once did a public dialogue with an Israeli novelist, I don't know if you've come across him, called Amos Oz. And Amos Oz said, look at the difference between Hebrew and English. In English, we say King David. 
What do we say in Hebrew? David HaMelech. Said in English, first comes the title. And then comes the person. But in Judaism, first comes the person. First comes the David. So he happens to be a Melech. Well, we're all B'nai Melachim. We're all royalty. Because if we can say, Avinu Malkenu, our father is the king, that makes us all a royal family. So, uh, sitting in the house of lords is wonderful, but sitting in the house of the Lord is even better. So, um, I was asked to say just a few words this morning about, uh, about Emunah, about faith. And I want to share with you. Now, all of you will know better than me, because I have not engaged in uh, popular culture for a while. But our English news and your American news has, was full these past few days of a, of a, a real tragedy. Uh, a, a famous actor, am I right? Uh, what was his name? Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I gather was a brilliant actor, an Oscar winner, and who dies at a young, a young age through heroin addiction. And there is absolutely no way any of us can understand that tragedy, let alone, uh, let alone suggest anything you can do about it. There is a principle in Jewish law. Lev yodea marat nafshon. Only we fully understand our own pain. That's something that nobody else will fully understand. So we can never really enter into the mindset of a tragedy like this, a man who wins Oscars at the top of his profession, and yet still feeling he lacks something. And in order to insulate himself from that pain, becomes a drug addict. We can't understand it. But I want to share with you one thought that was prompted by this news item. And it's a difficult thought. It's a difficult thought. Don't think it, it's simple. There was a famous sociologist who lived more than 100 years ago. His father was a rabbi. And this man, who was a Frenchman, virtually created the discipline known as sociology. Do anyone, anyone of you know who, who that was? Emile Durkheim. Who said that? Well done. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. And Emil Durkheim enthralled and even scandalized some people when he wrote a very famous book called Suicide. Now you would think, Rahman al-Islam, that of all deeply private and personal acts, suicide is the supreme example. It's the supreme personal tragedy that no one can explain. But Emil Durkheim came up with an extraordinary theory. He said whenever you find a society in a state of anomie, by which he meant a society where there are no agreed moral principles, where everyone is on their own when it comes to morality and the meaning of life, you will find in a society with anomie the suicide rate goes up. Regardless of the 
particular temperament of the individual, regardless of anything else about that society, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's at peace or at war, one way or another, a society which loses its collect... Um, can I do without this? Can you hear me without this? Any society that loses its collective bearing, its sense that we're all part of a moral universe, personal tragedies will multiply. And I thought to myself, here we are, we are the living a hundred years after Durkheim, the society with the greatest anomie there has been since first or second century Rome. We haven't had a situation like this before, when people thought that morality wasn't something we share, it's something we each make up for ourselves. That is a society of anomie. And that is why sometimes tragedies happen. It's an extraordinary thing. We are affluent beyond any previous generation that ever lived. We have choices and opportunities that our boobas and zaydas, or no, I had a booba and zayda, you had grandparents. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, our grandparents and their grandparents couldn't even dream of. And yet, over the space of two generations, there's been a rise between 300% and 1,000% on all the indices of personal tragedy drug disorder, eating disorder, alcoholism, um, uh, stress-related syndromes. There has been a huge increase, which tells us something very deep, that somehow or other we need to find meaning in life, and meaning is not something we do on our own. We find meaning by being part of something bigger than ourselves. All meaning is written in words. And all words are written in letters of the alphabet. And each one of us is a letter in the alphabet. I once wrote a book called A Letter in the Scroll. But if you think about it, a letter on its own, an aleph, a base, a shin, a dot, has no meaning. On its own, a letter has no meaning, despite the fact that letters are the vehicle of meaning. In order to find meaning... We have to join with other letters to become a word. Words have to join with other words to become a sentence. Sentences have to join with other sentences to become a paragraph. And paragraphs have to join with other paragraphs to make a story. We are part of a story that is bigger than ourselves. Why do I say this? Because there are a lot of very um, uh, evangelical atheists these days. I don't know, have you ever, have you come across any of these people? Sam Harris, my wonderful friend Richard Dawkins, uh, they're, 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 I call them the angry atheists. And there's a great deal of skepticism out there. And they are making a very big mistake, every one of them. And the mistake is this. They think religion is a way of explaining something we can't explain any other way. We didn't know how the world came into being, so we get religion and we read Boratius 1, and that's the answer. People in a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago didn't know how to cure illness, so they dovened, and that's how they did it. People didn't know how to run an economy, so they waited for the Kohen Godel to say his special prayers on Yom Kippur, and the economy flourished. People did not know 
how to uh, defend the nation. So they prayed to Hashem and he sent them victory. And these atheists say, nowadays, we have no need for any of them. Because in order to explain nature, we have science. In order to uh, have control over our destiny, we have technology. In order to have prosperity, we have an economy. And in order to defend a nation, we have democratically elected governments. So we don't need any of the things for which people used to turn to religion. That's how they understand religion, and that is why they are atheists. And that isn't what religion is about at all. And least of all is it what Judaism is about. There are three questions that any reflective human being has to ask, and they cannot be answered by any of the master disciplines of contemporary life science, technology, the state, and the market. And those three questions are these. Question one, who am I? Question two, why am I here? And question three, how then shall I live? Science explains how, but it cannot explain why. Technology gives us power. But it cannot tell us how to use that power. Democratically elected governments stop us from harming other people. But they do not and cannot tell us how we should live. And the market gives us choices but does not tell us what are the good choices to make and what are the bad ones. So people will still turn to religion and to faith and to God because that is a fundamental element of who we are without which we are less than half of human beings. As I put it in my book on religion and science called The Great Partnership, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. And therefore, what Judaism is about, deep down, is about explaining the why, not the what and how, of human existence in general and of our lives in particular. And there are in particular three ideas that Judaism gave the world. And they cannot be accounted for in terms of science. The first is the idea of freedom. The essence of the early stories in Bereshit are about freedom and not using that freedom responsibly. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the generation of the flood, the builders of Babel. Every one of us has a choice. See, says Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of his life, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life. That idea that at the very heart of life is choice, that is a Jewish idea. It came into the world through Torah, and it didn't fully exist outside of Torah. Today, if you sit and you talk to any neuroscientist, they'll tell you we don't have such a thing as freedom. We are all the product of our genes, our, our, 
upbringing, our DNA. They will give you all sorts of scientific experiments to show that we have no freedom. Whereas that wonderful man, the Yiddish novelist and Nobel Prize winner, Isaac Bysheves Singer, said, We have to be free! We have no choice! So number one, Judaism is the great voice of freedom in civilization. The second idea, which again you cannot get to through science, is human dignity. The sanctity and non-negotiable dignity, or how you say in America, inalienable rights. The idea that every life is holy. That is an idea that comes into human civilization with the words, Naseh Adam Betzalmenu Let us make man, says God, in our image according to our likeness. We are Betzalmenu Kim. We are in the image of God. Ask a scientist, and the scientist will tell you we share 98% of our DNA with the apes. We are no more than a concatenation of chemicals. Our highest thoughts are mere electrical impulses in the brain. There's nothing special about us at all. And when we lose our sense of the sanctity of life, bad things happen. So freedom and dignity are Jewish ideas. And number three, hope. Jews are the world's living symbol of hope. The ancient Greeks gave us the idea of tragedy. Aeschylus, Sophocles, Oedipus, Antigone, great tragedies, bad things happen. Judaism, what's the Hebrew word for tragedy? Pardon? What? Tragedia. Tragedia. Now go figure. (laughs) Work this one out. Jews have suffered as much as and perhaps more than any other people on the face of the earth, and yet we don't have a word for tragedy. When we wanted to say tragedy, we had to borrow the word from the Greeks, or from the Americans, or wherever it is. You know, go figure. Why? Because tragedy means bad things happen as a result of the way the world is. The universe is blind to our existence, deaf to our prayers. It couldn't care less whether we exist or not. Whereas Judaism says, Gam ki elef, begait lo even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We are not alone. And if hope has a voice in human civilization, it speaks with a Jewish accent. Not necessarily with a Brooklyn accent or a Bronx accent, but nonetheless with a Jewish accent. Those three things. There's no scientific evidence for hope. I did a broadcast, I did a, made a television program with Richard Dawkins once. And um, I got him to agree on all sorts of things. <laughs> the trouble is, when, you agree, when an atheist agrees with a rabbi, it's terrible television. You know? <laughs> Anyone an atheist disagreeing and hopefully defeating the rabbi. So they cut all this stuff out. <laughs> So I had Richard Dawkins read the famous letter, this they kept in, to his 10-year-old daughter. When she was 10 years old, he wrote to her, never accept anything without evidence, without scientific evidence. 
So I said, Richard, tell me something. You believe that you shouldn't settle anything without evidence, right? He said, yeah. I said, tell me, Richard, are you an optimist? He said, of course, I'm an optimist. I said, Richard, where's the scientific evidence? He said, I don't need scientific evidence. I said, Richard, do you hear what you just said? This is one of the most important things about you, and you have no evidence for it at all. There is no scientific evidence that would justify hope, that would justify optimism. And yet, deep down, the fact that we have hope rather than a tragic view of the universe is due to Judas. Those three things are essential. So when all the science, all the technology, all the politics and all the economics is in, there is still the big unanswered element of the life because we are not just physical beings, we are spiritual beings who seek meaning and purpose in our lives. And we can only find that meaning and purpose if we are joined to one another in a community of faith and practice. And Halakha is all about joining us to one another in the context of community presided over by Hashem. And that really is why faith matters. And why faith is not an automatic guarantor of finding meaning in life. But it is actually what we are driven to when we really seek for meaning in life. The atheist did one little thing which amused me enormously, and I just tell you the story, and with this I end, and then I'll ask you to ask any questions you might have on anything. Um, and that is, they decided to do an Ufaradsta campaign. You know, they decided to engage in outreach, all the atheists. I don't know if you read about this. In 2009, they paid for London buses. You know what a London bus looks like. You don't have them in New York. You? Well, you know, these double-decker buses. And they paid to um, carry a, a, an advertising slogan, which read, probably, God doesn't exist. <laughs> and, I, you know, they took out this huge advertising slogan. And I was fascinated by this because, of course, the most interesting word in that sentence is the word probably. So I wrote a little piece for a national paper in England called The Times, and I said, the word probable is such an interesting word. Tell me, how probable is it that the universe should come into existence? I don't know if you've read all this astrophysics, this cosmology. But even the most atheist co cosmologists, uh, astrophysicists, know that it was almost impossible for the universe to come into being. Uh, a friend of mine who was head of the Royal Society, that is, the society that Isaac Newton belonged to, the world's oldest scientific society, Lord Martin Rees, was the Astronomer Royal President of the Royal Society, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and an atheist, and an atheist, wrote a book called Just Six Numbers in which he shows that the entire configuration of the physical universe depends on six mathematical constants, like the strength of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force. If any of those had been different, 
by a billionth of a billionth of a degree, the universe wouldn't have come into being. So, for instance, if the force of gravity had been any weaker, after the Big Bang, the universe would have gone on expanding and expanding, and matter would never have coalesced to form stars, out of which came planets, out of which came us. And the improbability of, uh, of, of the universe coming into being, he reckoned, was about the probability of throwing a dart at a dartboard the other end of the universe, 13.7 billion light years away, and hitting a bullseye. So if we follow probability, the universe wouldn't come into being. If we follow probability, would life have come into being? Still, nobody has the slightest clue as to how inanimate matter became self-replicating life forms. The most elementary life form we know is so complicated that there is no way of getting from inanimate to animate matter at all. And as for uh, history, who is the most influential person who ever lived? Think about this. Who do you think? Pardon? Alexander the Great. Yeah, look, Alexander the Great conquered a larger swathe of the globe than anyone else. And the Alexandrian Empire lasted for how long? Are they? The culture preceded Alexander the Great, because Alexander the Great was a Talmud of Aristotle, who was a Talmud of Plato, who was a Talmud of Socrates, so we'd have to en enter all those in as well. I think if we look at the world today, the short answer has to be Abramovich, because more than half the people on the face of the earth right now declare themselves to be uh, following a faith whose spiritual ancestor was Abramovich. That is 2.4 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslims, and a few of us, most of whom are in this room this morning. <laughs> now go figure. How probable was it that a man who ruled no empire, commanded no army, performed no miracle, delivered no prophecy, should have become the most influential person there is? I have to tell you, pretty improbable. Or my favorite little story. Anyone know who invented probability theory? There's a French mathematician in the 17th century called Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal invented probability theory, invented many other things as well. At the age of 30, Pascal sat down. He was a Christian and studied the story of the Jewish people and came to the conclusion, the God of Abraham, not the God of Aristotle. And he writes in his great work, his notebook called The Pensee, that the history of the Jewish people is the single most compelling proof of the existence of God. And at the age of 30, having invented probability, he stopped writing mathematics and spent the rest of his life pursuing religious faith. How probable was that? Not very. So I concluded that if probability is the measure, nothing remotely interesting is probable. And therefore, the sentence on the bus is roughly right, 
But instead of writing probably God doesn't exist, you ought to write improbably he does. So that was my little piece. But I did end with this sentence. And I think this is what Jews have proved in every age. That faith is the defeat of probability by the power of possibility. Judaism, through its great heroes and heroines, has shown us what we might achieve. And by challenging us to great heights, lifted us to greatness. May Hashem and your experience in this wonderful institution lift you to greatness. And may He bless all you do. Thank you. It's not over. Sit down. It ain't over. Relax. Um, So, uh, coming from the uh, British Isles myself, I'd like to use an American expression and say, on behalf of everyone here, that was awesome. I think awesome. That's a, uh, I've learned awesome. how to say that. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we have a few moments with Dr. Uh, Lord Sachs. Any questions anyone has? And we can fit it. We can fit it in. Until 11:45. Okay. So yes. we've got 20 minutes. Stephanie, yes, is a bit of here. Yeah. Um, so I'm going back to the point you said earlier. No, I, I, I mean, you know, we do have pretty reasonable statistics on this. We've got statistics going back 50 years, and those were the figures that I was relating to. And we have statistics in the, in the other direction as well. So, for instance, about 20 years ago, a major longitudinal study was carried out here in the States. And they discovered that the average American, this is 20 years ago, has a life expectancy of 75. Uh, But if you go regularly to a house of worship, your life expectancy is 82. Or as I said to my wife Elaine, being religious makes you live seven years longer, or maybe it just seems seven years longer. (laughs) Sorry, that's a tease. (laughs) There is a famous study done by the, it was started, it wasn't finished, by the University of Minnesota, called the Nuns Study. There was an order of nuns, a convent uh, of the Order of the Sacred Heart, where the nuns decided they would hand, they, they would allow themselves, their brains and their bodies to be examined after their death for medical research. And the order... Um, was such that when nuns entered this convent, usually at around the age of 21, they wrote a story about themselves as to why they had come into the order. And so, and of course, by the time the study began, most of them were in their 80s. So they were able to do, compare the longevity of these nuns to what they had said about themselves 60 years earlier. And it's very interesting that the nuns who had expressed more gratitude to Hashem in their stories lived longer 
In other words, just giving thanks to someone for the fact that we are here does extraordinary things to your health. And don't forget, what, what, what is the word... Why are we called Yehudim? Why are we called Jews? Because, we, yeah? Because uh, we give, we're grateful for um, Yeah. I, what was our original name as a people? Um, our original name was Yisrael. We were Am Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael. And then, as you know, after three generations of kings, the kingdom split in two. The ten tribes in the north, which became Israel, and the two tribes in the south, that became Yehudah, right? Yehudah and Israel. The ten tribes were conquered by the Assyrians, and they disappeared, the lost ten tribes. All that were left were the Yehudim, the people in the south, and that is why when we come on Purim to read Megillah's Esther, which is a very late book, you will see they're called Yehudim rather than Yisrael, because this is after, after the disappearance of the of north. And um, when Judah was born, his mother, Leah, said, Apam Hashem. I will, this time I thank Hashem. So to be Jewish is to give thanks. So we have the medical evidence on the negative side. We have the medical evidence on the positive side. And there's huge amounts of this evidence. This is not a few isolated experiments. It's been going on for a very long time. They're being part of a community, being a part of a strong family, and having a strong sense of meaning in life, and being part of a community that shares that strong sense of meaning in life, has a very positive impact on health, on happiness, and on many other things as well, um, including how much of our time we dedicate to the welfare of others. Very great professor in Harvard, Robert Putnam, Wrote, published a book in 2010 called American Grace, in which he explains that being a member of a church or a shul massively multiplies the extent to which you help other people in life, you're an altruist, and so on and so forth. So we have a lot of evidence of this, and it's pretty, I think, it's, it's as near to incontrovertible as you can get. Can I just say, Stephanie, that all my years I've never heard someone answer the question about eating disorders using the Purim story. So just that alone was uh, pretty incredible. Hey, anyone else? Yeah, hi. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us this morning. I've got a question that I think that would be difficult to answer quickly, but could you give us a statement on how you feel about the political situation in England and France right now concerning Jews and anti-Semitism, and what you think that's going to look like in the next 10 years? The political situation of Jews in Europe is very difficult and quite dangerous. I grew up, you know, I, I, I didn't go to Jewish schools. When I was growing up, there were very few of them, and I didn't go to them. So I grew up among non-Jews. I went to university before I went to yeshiva. And in all my life, I never experienced anti-Semitism. Not one instance. So the first time I spoke about anti-Semitism, ever, was on February the 28th, 2002, when I felt, you know, stuff is beginning to happen and I have to speak about it. That day I addressed members of the British Parliament. 
I wrote a, uh, an op-ed in, in an English newspaper, and I then spoke about it for several years afterwards. And in May 2007, having got the message across to British politicians and parliamentarians, in May 2007, I went to Europe, to Brussels, and sat with the three leaders of Europe in 2007, they're still around, uh, Hans-Gerd Kotering, who is the head of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, José Manuel Barroso, who's head of the Economic Union, and Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, who uh, was at that time chairing the European nations. And I delivered the shortest speech I've ever delivered. And here it is. I said, Jews and Europe go back a long way. And that history added some terrible words to the human vocabulary. Words like disputation, expulsion, forced conversion, inquisition, ghetto, and pogrom. Brackets, every one of those words was created to describe a Jewish condition in Europe. I said, even without mentioning the great word, Holocaust, I said, all of that is past. But today, the Jews of Europe are asking, is there a place for Jews in Europe? And that should concern you, the leaders of Europe. And I said that. I shot them between the eyes. I doubt that anyone ever spoke to them like that before. Immediately, Angela Merkel took me out for lunch and said, what would you like us to do, Chief Rabbi? At that time, I didn't have an easy answer. Luckily, having made that promise, I was able to take her up on it only a, a year or so ago when a court in Germany in a town called Cologne banned Brit Milan. And I immediately wrote to Angela Merkel, and I said, you ask me what you can do, you can deal with this. And immediately Angela Merkel overruled the ruling of the court in general. But it's a very, very troubling situation. So in 2003, when I persuaded the then head of Europe, Romano Prodi, to hold a conference in Brussels in the EU building on anti-Semitism, I got up and said this, and I believe this very strongly, Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. And because of that, <clears throat> I have insisted for the last 30, for the last 10 years that the fight against anti-Semitism has to be led by the political and religious leaders of Europe and it must not be left to Jews alone to fight it. And Britain became the first country in which the fight against anti-Semitism is led by non-Jews. First and foremost by the Prime Minister. All three Prime Ministers since then, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, have got up and said in public, in big, big gatherings, Jews will never be left to fight anti-Semitism alone. All of them have aligned themselves with that fight. And secondly, Britain, is I'm sure there's no other country in the world where this is done. The British government pays for every school in Britain 
primary, secondary, every school without exception, to send two children and one teacher to Auschwitz. So that no school in Britain and no person in Britain should be unaware of what actually happened. And uh, that's the only way we can deal with it. We have ourselves to stand up and refuse to be intimidated, and we have to ensure that it's the governments of Europe and the religious leaders of Europe uh, who lead the fight. In order to get the other religious leaders on board, in November 2008, I, I together with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rome Williams, took a group of religious leaders from every faith in Britain, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Zoroastrian, and Baha'i to Auschwitz. We, we went with them, we, we, we sat with them for two hours at the end of the visit in, in Krakow, and, and every one of those is with us in the fight against anti-Semitism. And that's how we have to do it. Yeah, we have one more question. Time for one more question. You're the lucky one, yeah. No, 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 no. I'll tell you, you've never read that in a newspaper. You got it in an email. That email has been running around for 10 years. And it is, it is completely untrue. And it was, uh, the, its untruth was sent around that same day by our organization, the Holocaust Education Trust. It's just that once an email has gone out, you can never pull it back. And already five, six years ago, every American I knew had received this email four or five times. What The truth is that there was one school in Britain which one year didn't teach the Holocaust because they had no member of staff who knew anything about the Holocaust. Are you with me? It's got nothing to do with Muslims. It happened in one school and it happened by accident. And we put out the correction within 24 hours, but nobody did it. So I, for, the, for ADL here... They asked me to come and do a tour and tell people the actual truth, and it's completely untrue. Yeah, we'll so we've got time, time for one more question, yeah. Um, if, religion, if religion is what gives people purpose in life, how do you explain people who devote their lives to a purpose who aren't religious? Repeat the question. Repeat the question. Uh, the question is, how are there people who devote their lives to a purpose who are not religious? They have I, 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 it's a good question, and let me make clear exactly what I mean. What I mean is an overarching purpose that embraces all of us. Individuals, religious or not religious, can have their own private purpose. There's absolutely no doubt that the late Steve Jobs, bless him, terrific man, he had a purpose in life. He wasn't religious, but he had a purpose. The difference is, and that's why I said what I said at the beginning about this concept called anomie, is that what you lack when a society loses religion is its sense of shared purpose. But individual purpose, yes, individuals can have. But uh, sometimes that doesn't protect you against A, the loneliness, and B, the, the you know, it... Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a community to sustain a purpose. 
So some rare individuals can be driven by a purpose, and they're not necessarily religious. I don't know if Claude Monet was religious. All I know was, even in his 80s, he went out into the garden and painted his, his, his water lilies. You know, I, individuals, yes. But what I'm talking about is a purpose bigger than us as individuals that embraces not only us, but a community of people who share that purpose. A big thank you to Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sack for joining us. Um, just we get a personal guarantee that you're going to come back this semester and speak for us again, Doctor. Is that possible? Thank you so much. And if you like, and if you like what you heard, there's a lot of articles and books and lots of things out there by Rabbi Lord Sachs that you can read. So thank you so much. For Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.